to episode four of our five-part series looking back at the Minnesota Vikings' Miracle 2017 season. For this episode, we look at weeks 12 through 17 in which we see another season-defining win, a loss that brings some trepidation within the team, and a moment that Minnesota Vikings fans will never forget. And to help us look back at the final stanza of the regular season, I am joined by Judd Zulgad. And Judd, on this day, we travel to Detroit for week 12 against the Detroit Lions on Thanksgiving Day, a game that we would see some cracks in the foundation of the Minnesota Vikings defense and a play that nearly led uh, to big problems for the Vikings on Thanksgiving, but overall a very solid 30 to 23 win just four days after they had had their win that made them a true contender against the Los Angeles Rams. Judd, this one kind of had disappointment written all over it. And the, (laughs) and then the Vikings instead showed us that they were just a different version of the Minnesota Vikings this year. Exactly. And I I was going to say this to me is a, is a defining, Vikings game, right? This is the type of game where they beat the Rams and you're like saying to yourself, this is a pretty good team. This team might be, and then not all, but a lot of Vikings teams would go play this game on a very short week and Detroit being Detroit, which is a, just a weird roller coaster team. A lot of times a bad team as well, but a team that has at times given the Vikings some fits, this would be the type of game that the Vikings would, would sort of have a lot of the air come out, right, Matthew? Because they'd lose this game. And yeah, this was, to me, an incredibly important win based on the fact that you began to say, okay, this might be special here. And also, I really think that by this point, too, in the season in 2017, we had gotten to the, we had gotten to the area of, when's case going to fall apart? Yes. You know, when's case going to fall? And, and Mike Zimmer, God bless him at how many press conferences around this time said things that basically indicated fully that he was thinking exactly what we were saying, which is this quarterback, this seems like a a magic carpet, ride, And it's a lot of fun, but it's going to come unglued. And so to go into Detroit short week, coming off an impressive win against the Rams and to win on Thanksgiving, it gave you a confidence that this might not be the same old, Hey, someone's going to put a pin in these Vikings and it's going to uh, end in a disappointing fashion. So what was different a little bit about this game from some of the other previous ones we've talked about is that Case Keenum was marvelous in this game. There were other ones where he may have thrown four touchdowns against Washington, but then two bad interceptions or against Los Angeles, where you were talking about going into halftime at seven, seven, and and they had some slow starts on offense that made us think, boy, if they have one of those in a playoff game, they're going to be in trouble. But then in this one, he comes out gunslinging and they get up 20 to three on, I think Case Keenum's best pure pass of the entire season. There were magical Keenum passes that he threw up in the air and somebody brought in, whether it was Diggs or Thielen or anybody else that we just could not believe were actually happening in front of our eyes, but they were a lot of, okay, that's not sustainable or that's just some wild luck right there or Thielen and Diggs being special but in this game he made a throw that you would put up against anybody if Patrick Mahomes made this throw you would say this was a great one and that was to go up 20 to 3 they're at the 22 yard line he drops straight back there's a good pass rush from the Detroit Lions and he gets smacked and releases a perfect throw to Kyle Rudolph 22 yards down the field which is not usually as far downfield as we see Kyle Rudolph and he drops it right in the bucket perfectly and at that point Judd I started to feel like wait maybe we are wrong about Case Keenum <laughs> I mean, because you and I had been discussing on the show and during games and what Mike Zimmer was saying about a horseshoe around his neck we had been on the same side as the head coach how long is this going to last this is not this guy's career and he comes out of this game 21 for 30 282 yards two touchdowns and 121.8 quarterback rating. And we also felt, Judd, that after this win, not after Los Angeles, because he had been just okay in Los Angeles, uh, after this win, Case isn't coming out. He's going to be the starting quarterback the rest of the way. They're not benching him at this point for Teddy Bridgewater or if Sam Bradford comes back, because now they're 9-2 and after beating Detroit. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and it was... 
My question now, in in retrospect, about that entire year or two, is very simple. My question now is, would you and I have been so convinced that things were going to eventually go wrong or the possibility existing? And how much would we have talked about that if Zimmer hadn't himself talked about the same thing so much? Because, you know, I think a lot of our discussion at that time, Matthew, was driven by the fact, because Keenum had some really nice games, but it was driven by the fact that it did seem like at every turn, if anything slightly went askew, mm-hmm. uh, Mike would question it. Mike would bring up something that had gone that, that in his mind had been lucky. So if you rewind the clock for us as well now, and you go back and the coach basically doesn't say a thing about, about uh, case Keenum, the quarterback, and let's say he has some concerns, but he just doesn't bring them up. How much are we going to that? Well, because I really think, at least personally for me at that time, a lot of how I felt and what I talked about was driven by this clear, um, this clear notion from the head coach was very, which was a very simple thing, which was indeed, I don't trust this guy completely. And therefore I said to myself, well, if you don't trust him completely, guess who else doesn't me. (laughs) Right. Yeah. No, that's a really good question because we do take our cues from reading between the lines. And with Mike Zimmer and Case Keenum, there was no between the lines. He was being straightforward about it, that he just didn't really trust him and was afraid that he was going to throw a big interception at a big time and cost them a playoff game. And of course, uh, that's episode five, but, um, You know, Judd, I always looked at this as circumstance had just been perfect for Case Keenum. And where he started to show something different was in this part of the season, weeks 8 through 11. It was very different because you were right to be skeptical when you beat Mitch Trubisky, you knock out Aaron Rodgers, then you beat Joe Flacco, who's a shell of himself at that point, and then Deshaun Kaiser. I mean, congratulations. And he wasn't really putting up great numbers at that point. But from Washington, Los Angeles, Detroit, and then Atlanta, which we'll get to in a second, he completes 74% of his passes, nine touchdowns, two picks, 116.7 quarterback rating, and 8.6 yards per attempt. I mean, those are MVP type of numbers that he put up through that four-game stretch. And that was the hardest from our perspective to explain to fans what the head coach was trying to say to, and to be on the side of Mike Zimmer, that this magic carpet ride probably wasn't going to last because through that section of play, he was absolutely marvelous. You could have not asked anything more of him through that. And and it, and it culminates with uh, the game in Atlanta, but the Detroit game is where he was really spectacular. And the passing attack won them this game because the defense was actually not perfect. Uh, This is a a little bit of a a crack in the foundation to Judd of the defense in this game against Detroit. If you if you remember, there's a play where Xavier Rhodes gets injured and there's a miscommunication. And I'm not sure that he's ever been the same since this play. So Matt Stafford drops back. It's uh, 27-16. Matt Stafford drops back and launches the ball down the sideline to Marvin Jones. And he makes one of the best darn catches I've ever seen in my life. Over, if you if you recall, it's Xavier Rhodes and Terrence Newman. There's a miscommunication. He makes the catch over them, and everybody goes down to the ground, and Rhodes seems to be hurt. And he, he was limping around a lot after that, and we would see that from him for the next three seasons. It was really also unusual to see anybody complete any passes against Xavier Rhodes through then because he's emerging as one of the best shutdown corners in the NFL. He has... He has gone through the Antonio Browns and the Mike Evanses, and he hasn't been a big part of our podcast series, but on the defensive side, he is putting together one of the best cornerback seasons that's ever happened for the Vikings. And I always wondered if that right there started the sort of downfall of Xavier Rhodes that we eventually saw with them releasing him, that play where he ends up getting injured and Marvin Jones catching that touchdown to make it 27-23 in this game. And that, that was the point of that game where you thought, are the Vikings going to Viking here against Detroit, right? right. Because yes. there was – because the, the Zim, Zim coach teams and Detroit are weird because you know what? Bud beat the Lions all the time. Ticey, Childress, same exact thing. 
But Mike's teams against D- Detroit, and yes, Detroit's had some improved teams at times. Mike Zimmer's teams against Detroit have been weird, and that play and and Jones's um, catch at that point did have you thinking to yourself, "Oh boy, this could this could be trouble." And I will give you the other very uh, on point on brand 2017 thing about that game, and it happened after the Vikings scored early in that game on a one yard pass from Keenum to Rudy. And that was Kai Forbath kick fail. Yes. Yep. That was the other very on brand. The thing that, and and I mean, you know, keep in mind, it was a culmination in my opinion, completely of missed PATs that eventually caused them to uh, cut bait with Forbath, who was a pretty good kicker, but him missing that PAT was if there were two things that drove Zim crazy in 2017, I would say without a doubt, the two things were Keenum's passes that he couldn't tolerate, couldn't stand because he kept thinking that they're going to get picked off. And the other thing was Kai Forbath, not necessarily missing field goals, but missing PATs. Uh, Forbath was on the money with his field goals throughout that season. It was entirely the PATs that led them to draft Daniel Carlson and have that blow up in their face almost immediately in week two in Green Bay and then cut Daniel Carlson. I guess all's well that ends well with Dan Bailey, but uh, Forbath... It was a hero of the entire season, not just the Minneapolis Miracle game that we'll talk about on episode five, but the the entire year he was so on point with his field goals to think that they focused so much on a handful of extra points really sort of shows you the amount of pressure that everybody was under after the 2017 season. Now, interestingly about Kai Forbath is that he ends up playing a role nearly in a complete botching of this game, but it's called back. I want to get to that in a second, but there's another play in this game, Judd, that stuck in my mind for a very, very long time, and it will come up again in conversation when we get to the Green Bay game, you and I in Lambeau Field, and on the way there to Lambeau Field, you putting on a cheese hat for some reason. I still have that photograph, by the way. Um, But there's a screen pass to Stefan Diggs, that goes for 37 yards, just a quick screen. Pat Shermer is just like the puppet master. Then he's calling every play is working. And on this play, I remember breaking it down, doing the film and the all 22 thing. Nick Easton, the guard runs out full speed and gets to the safety and is essentially lead blocking for Stefan Diggs on a wide receiver screen. And it was a very special feat of athleticism for a guard to see him sprinting out that fast into the secondary and seeing a safety wanting no part of a guard coming full speed at him. Now, just keep (laughs) just keep that in your mind as we go down the stretch of this conversation. So four bath lines up a field goal to make it a seven point game, hoping to close things out. It's blocked and it's it's called back. They, they jumped the gun. They were offside, whatever the, I'll have to look up the penalty. Exactly. That was one where we again went, ah, Vikings history. Nice to see you here. And then when it didn't count, oh, 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 this year's different, isn't it? Yeah, that, exactly. Exactly. Because that, and that was the thing. And, and that is, so the biggest frustration I think about, being a fan of or even covering this team for an extended period of time is getting lulled slowly but surely by the years when things don't go wrong that ordinarily do go wrong <laughs> yes, and so yes. so that so that was the type of thing to your point and, and you know what this happened at times in 98 it happened in 2009 that was a time where you said oh okay it went wrong but it didn't count this time yep. and so and, and if you add those pieces up enough and things don't go wrong, you eventually say to yourself, and and 2017 was very much this because that was, that was a really good defense. It was an offense that was good, but a quarterback who, who certainly was not Brett Favre uh, in 2009, but that was a Vikings team that began around this time, probably to use the old cliche sort of looked like a team of destiny in some ways. Yeah. And you, and you started to say to yourself, this might not be the best team in the league, but it's a damn good team. And if things continued to break, right, which is a play that you just described breaking, right, that they might have a chance. And it's not, and it's not that they're going to win a Super Bowl based on the fact that they're great, but you don't have to be great. If you also get, get some fortune and you're pretty damn good, which they were. So yeah, that play, 
that play was building upon these weeks going by of, oh, that didn't go wrong? Okay, well, if that didn't go wrong, perhaps it won't go wrong the next week or the week after that. And so that's where I think we started to sort of go down this path of, okay, let's go see. So I had my events a little bit backwards on this, so let me just clarify. Sure. Uh, Forbath makes a 36-yard field goal to go up by seven. Stafford throws the interception to Xavier Rhodes, and we don't think about whatever happened before. Eventually, it did seem to take a toll on Xavier Rhodes, that injury that happened on that play. So then the Vikings have the ball back, and Forbath is going to kick a field goal on fourth and one, which some of us even question that. Like, go for it and just close this game out. Forbath kicks the field goal. It's blocked by Darius Slay. They return it for a touchdown, but Slay was offside. And even when you go back and look at it, it's very close. And there's another blocked field goal that happens the following season against Seattle where it was every bit as close and maybe they violated a rule jumping over the center. And yet that time it wasn't called. And it just speaks to if you're going to go 13-3 and with a backup quarterback, you better have things go right for you. Now, let's go on to Atlanta here, Judd. This this one in the first half of this game was, again, one of those classic what's going on with Keenum and, and is the fairy dust running out for Keenum. It's remarkable how many times in this season that you have a first half that ends three to two against Chicago, seven to six, seven to seven, nine to six, something like that. And in this game, it was super ugly. The defense is playing great. Keenum seems a little bit off. And they go to halftime seven to six in Atlanta. And then Keenum starts to catch fire and Latavius Murray starts to take over. This is the good version of Latavius Murray. Who's been rolling since the Baltimore game. And they have a drive where they basically hand off the entire time. And eventually Keenum comes out of this game, throwing a ton of short and quick passes. They had adjusted to that. And he goes 25 for 30, 227 yards, two touchdowns, 120 quarterback rating. And it closed out with, if you recall, Judd, a missed Matt Bryant field goal. And the Vikings get the ball back with a chance to end it. And Adam Thielen burns somebody off the line. They get a first down. They end it. And this was one where you said they are really proving it now to go to Atlanta against a team that had been in the Super Bowl the year before they hold Matt Ryan to 173 yards. Julio Jones in this game gets two catches for 24 yards against the Vikings defense. I mean, how many times in his career has he ever done that? And another one of those, man, I guess they are for real. Do you think as well? And this was uh, clearly not a attractive game to watch. But do you think in Mike Zimmer's time here as head coach starting in 2014, was this the time do you, that he was as happy as he's ever been with his OC? Because Pat Shermer, to go back to your point from before, was pulling all the right strings. We've talked about in the two games that we have uh, reviewed so far, the amount of times that they ran the ball, they ran the ball successfully, and therefore eight clock in Mike's mind. You know, I, I mean, this was probably the point in time where I thought to myself, we have criticized how, how many OCs here, Daryl Bevel, uh, mm-hmm. Bill Musgrave, all of these guys, Norv to a certain point, exactly, right? And, and you know, this was one of the great years of play calling. And it wasn't that the players were all huge, but it was the play calling that, that sort of went hand in hand with what you could tell Mike wanted. And I almost had a feeling around this time that if if – Mike Zimmer has ever been, if the correct word is content, as coach of the Vikings. This might have been the most content he was in being completely comfortable with the guy who was who was in charge of his offense because he's the most content when it's also benefiting his defense. Well, that's definitely right. And one of the reasons that they go 13-3 and is despite Zimmer's fears and his nightmares and what was keeping him up at night of Keenum throwing the big interception – Case Keenum did not turn the ball over during this season. He only throws a couple of interceptions. He fumbles one time the entire year, which we'll get to in Carolina. And uh, that's really helped them become the number one defense. It's something that we don't factor in much. But if you think about the 2019 Tampa Bay Bucks, who led the NFL in turnovers, even though they were a strong defense, their numbers and their points allowed and their yards allowed were bad because their quarterbacks giving up the ball all the time. And if you look at 
Tom Brady's history of not turning the ball over, and it's helped Bill Belichick, no doubt, be so great defensively. So I absolutely agree. Not only that, but Shermer's ability to adapt. And and this is what was amazing. I mentioned the low scores in the first half. So you're drawing up the game script. Okay, it's not working. They figured out how to slow you down. They're stopping what you do well. And now let's adjust. And the second half adjustment was to go to these really quick passes from Keenum. And, and I mentioned he completed 25 of 30. But listen to these numbers in terms of how many different guys they threw to. Murray had three catches. McKinnon had five. Diggs had two. C.J. Ham had one for 12 yards. Adam Thielen had four. Kyle Rudolph had four. Michael Floyd had two. I don't remember either one of them. For, Je- for, for a season high, 20 yeah, yards. That's right. Michael, that's right. This was the Michael Floyd game, Matthew. Yes, this was, I guess. Uh, his, his second best game was in Chicago when he had a 19 yard catch. So I guess it was worth it. Uh, Jerry's Wright has three catches and yes, a third down, an important third down in the game. They found Laquan Treadwell for a nine yard first down. So that is three, six, nine different targets in this game. So there were other games throughout the year where Thielen and Diggs were cooking and they just threw to them all the time. And then in this one, Atlanta found a way to keep Diggs and Thielen in front of them so they couldn't hit deep shots, so they just dinked and dunked everywhere else. It w- it really was, Pat Shermer was the pinball wizard this year. Everything was just hitting perfectly for him, and the second half of this game, though it is low scoring, you look at the amount of time that the Vikings controlled the ball in this game. They took Matt Ryan completely off the field. They had the ball for 34 minutes in this game, and just perfectly plotted out, okay, we're not going to be able to move the ball the way we have before, so we're going to do it this way instead. And this proved to us not only that they could win a big game on the road against a good team, but also to be a little more dynamic and make adjustments on the fly, things that would project well forward. And that's my point, though, is that this this is my dream, right? Like at this point, it's low scoring, it's it's um, ball control. I mean, the, these are all things that, that the day that Pat left, I think Mike said, "Oh my God, they're gone now, right?" And so, so it went through a stretch here, and and two with the game that we started with in this episode. You know, keep in mind, it's what it's um, it's three or four on the road, three consecutive road games, which in this league is very very rare. And so, I think you go to Detroit and Atlanta. Matthew, and you don't care how you win. If you win, you're just happy. So if yes. it's so, if you score thirty, which they did against Detroit, that's awesome. If you win fourteen to, to nine, which they did against the Falcons, that's great too. You don't care. You've got three consecutive road games uh, spanning from Thanksgiving Day through December 10th, which is incredibly tough. And if you can win a couple. You're perfectly content. We knew that that was the prove it section of the Mm -hmm. season. And again, we think of Detroit as kind of being a laughing stock now, but that Detroit team was pretty good. That was a significant win. So you have two teams uh, in the Rams and the Falcons that were Super Bowl contenders, legit Super Bowl contenders, and you beat both of them. And then you mix it in with that win against Detroit. And everyone at this point, moment had to acknowledge this team is for real. They're a legitimate contender. Uh, they've done it ugly. They've done it with big offensive performances. They've done it relying on the run game. They've done it relying on their pass game. And I want to take a second to point out just a few guys that played sort of low key, important roles in this team, because anytime you have a 13, three team, it takes everybody. You can't have big weaknesses at this spot or that spot. You have to have people step up. And even if they didn't have great careers, you need it from that year. So Ryan Quigley in this contest has, has five punts and averages 45 yards a punt and is consistently pinning teams in the entire regular season. Ryan Quigley, another guy that they got rid of after for a worse say, punter. Matthew, yes, it wasn't I know. good enough. It I, wasn't good enough. I know. Matthew. I'm still confused by it, but Ryan Quigley did not have a touchback the whole season. So, again, where it speaks to defense is more of a team statistic because your offense impacts it, your special team impacts it. Uh, Ryan Quigley was really, really good. And another guy that is worth pointing out is Rashad Hill, who they have really liked since and continue to sign to contracts. But Rashad Hill had to start for Mike Remmers. He had the back issue, and then he had a concussion. And Rashad Hill is the starting right tackle in Detroit and in this game and played 
really, really well as a fill-in in those couple of games. So I, I think that that's sort of important to point out that when you have a season as special as 2017, a lot of those type of performances, your underappreciated heroes and things like that, those come up. All right, on to Carolina, Judd. Now, this is where things... Thanks, Mr. Belichick. Thing, I know. This is where things get hairy for the Vikings. Uh, I was there in Carolina, and right from the very start, you knew it might be not their day because Jonathan Stewart runs for a 60-yard touchdown. And I can't tell you, after watching the defensive performances that they had put on in the previous weeks, seeing someone run for a 60-yard touchdown, it's like, yep. wait, did I get off at the wrong stadium? Like, what? That, Is this really was, happening? That was an A-gap breakdown, if I recall correctly. Is that right? Yeah, they just ran straight up the middle and right ran right in the end zone. I mean, it was it was the least now, highlighty 60-yard run you've ever seen. Now, in fairness, I will say this. At the end of three consecutive road games with the, with the success that the Vikings had had to date, this was bound to happen, too. Like, you're going to have this game. It yep. just depends when, right? Yeah. So, because so, was this really a 14-2 and two team? I say no way. So, so this game was a bit unsightly. A bit unsightly? It, it was not awful. But the fact was, you also said to yourself, okay, this was going to take place. And, and it does make sense that what we're going to talk about took place at the end of three consecutive games on the road. Yes. So let's let's get there in a second. But just this is a wild one because it goes really back and forth in like, sort of shootout, but sort of like bleep show fashion uh, where – You know, Carolina makes some mistakes. The Vikings make some mistakes. There's some big plays mixed in. Uh, Andrew Sandejo intercepts a pass and comes very, very close to scoring a touchdown, which would have won them the game. Case Keenum throws a touchdown to Adam Thielen that would have been a touchdown by today's catch standards, but by the present standards in 2017 was not a catch. And Mike Zimmer went absolutely crazy on the sideline. This is one of those. What if moments? What if it, that is called a touchdown catch for Adam Thielen? Maybe they're 14 and two. I'm assuming they go 14 and two and win this game. And then they have home field throughout the playoffs. And then is it different facing Nick Foles in your building as opposed to their building? And of course we'll never know, but this is one of those, Oh, that's a thing that would come up later because you went 13 and three as opposed to 14 and two, all because of this call that was very borderline. He catches it. It's kind of moving around still. And again, I think that by today's standards, that is a touchdown catch. So the Vikings end up having uh, Case Keenum with a really tough performance. This was the one we had been waiting for. He throws a couple of interceptions. He's getting pressured a ton. And in this one, for the first time, they had no running game to speak of. And Case Keenum was forced to put the team on his back. This was the thing that we kept saying Case Keenum couldn't do, which was get behind in a game and have to bring your team back. And actually, Judd, he sort of proved us wrong, even though they lost, by bringing them back to tie the game at 24-24. How, how was Latavius Murray that day held to 14 yards rushing on nine carries? McKinnon had uh, 46 yards on seven, and Case actually rushed or scrambled for 40 yards on five carries. But Murray's day, 14 yards, Matthew, on nine carries. I will give you long, the answer to that. Along of 11. Yes, yes, sir. I have the answer to that. If you recall, Pat Elfline gets hurt in this game, the shoulder injury that he would need surgery on the following season. And I don't think he's ever truly recovered from that, along with an injured ankle that he suffered in the NFC championship game. But Kawan short in the middle of the field in that game was completely dominating the middle. And every time they handed off, it just didn't go anywhere because they couldn't get any push from the interior offensive line, which had been so good for the full season. But Elfline ends up getting, I think he might've actually not started that game and gotten hurt the week before, but I'm not hundred percent certain he wasn't in for either the entire game or a big portion of this game. And that really struggled because we will now look at Pat Elfline's career as a third round pick who didn't really work out. They moved him from center to guard throughout the first half and more of that season. He looked like Mick Tinglehoff. He just, he looked like he was going to be a special player and, and his downfall comes in, in part because of this shoulder injury. So you're, you're, 
starting Vikings offensive line that day, left tackle was Riley Reef. Your left guard was Jeremiah Searles. To your point, your center that day was Nick Easton. Joe Berger, Joe Berger started at right guard That's and Rashad right. Hill at right tackle. So, so he didn't Easton start at all. Started, yeah. So he did not play in that game. Right. That's right. correct. All right. So here's what we have. Cam Newton takes off and makes an incredible play to set up a go-ahead touchdown, and Case has got a shot to win it. And I think all of us are looking at this not saying, oh, well, the season's on the line, but hey, Case, can you do this? Can you lead a game-winning drive when everyone knows you've got to throw the ball? And he couldn't have come up much more short. Uh, three straight incompletions, or I'm sorry, four straight incompletions. No, it was three after taking a sack, and they lose, just like that. Now, normally you would say this isn't that big of a deal, but what's hovering over is the fact that Teddy Bridgewater has now been practicing and active for several weeks, and every talk show, every pro football talk and so forth (laughs) website is looking for any hint that the Vikings would turn over the ball to Teddy Bridgewater. And after that game, the receivers in the locker room have a huddled up meeting that I was standing within proximity of. I could not hear, but they were really animated over there. And there were some rumors that came out on the internet. Nobody confirmed it and it did not happen, but there were some little bit of buzz that the receivers wanted to go to Teddy Bridgewater because they felt that the magic carpet ride of Case Keenum was over and he was going to struggle after that. And uh, to some extent, they turned out to be right that at the end of the season, he was not the same after that Carolina game as he had been through his hot stretch. But it showed that what was on the outsiders minds like us talking about, will they turn it over to Teddy? They've still got time to do it was also on the minds of the people inside the locker. What do you think in in uh, retrospect now, looking back on that day and what you saw there in the locker room after that game? What type of impact do you think that that had to because if reporters saw it, players obviously probably be on the receiving group talked about it. What type of impact do you think that that had on that team that the players were, if not calling for a change, at least discussing a change in the midst of such a successful season? The best way I can put it is that there was no ignoring that. Case Keenum's career suggested he wasn't going to be able to continue to sustain the level of play from week 10 on to week 13. And I had heard later that Zimmer in some people's mind decided on like the third day of training camp. Okay. Case Keenum can't play. He's, he's not very good. And I'm never going to believe in this guy because just look at how poor he is in training camp. His raw skills are not all that impressive. He's nothing more than a backup who has gotten a, a, a great set of circumstances and then a little bit of luck and a little great play calling and so forth. And, and that is what I think a lot of people in the locker room thought about Case Keenum. And if you go down the road and fast forward to his other trips to uh, Denver and Washington, it's been proven to be correct that the only time he was ever a really good quarterback that could elevate anyone uh, was in Minnesota. And, and his whole season the numbers overall are kind of pumped up by just a handful of games where he was really great. And before that, he wasn't, you know, games against Chicago, Green Bay, Baltimore, and the Browns. He's not great. Uh, And then after that, Cincinnati, the Packers, and the Chicago Bears, again, not great at any point. It was really just that four-game stretch. So I I think that seeing Teddy practicing, knowing what the last time Uh, what Teddy looked like the last time they saw him, which was not just in the playoff game, but remember how he looked in the 2016 preseason. Teddy Bridgewater. Chargers game. Yeah. He looked looked like it it, it was a new Teddy who had come back with a stronger arm and more confidence and was poised to have a great 2016 season. That was the last memory. And then they were seeing it in practice too, that Teddy is a more gifted quarterback than Case Keenum. That had to be talked about in whispers inside that locker room. But the following week, Judd, we see what a special team this truly was in 2017, where I don't know in my career ever again, Judd, that I will cover a team that had chemistry like this, that had a closeness in the locker room, that had people that truly saw each other as brothers who had gone through all of this stuff to get to the point of this season. Cincinnati 
I'm not even going to bother with all the other stuff. There was a rumor that Marvin Lewis was getting fired and then he comes out to coach and, uh, you know, the, Andy Dalton is awful in this game, throws an interception to Eric Kendricks. They're running all over them. But I will say there was a little bit of a sputter early, uh, and you did hear some Teddy, Teddy cheers from the crowd. I do remember that. But let's just fast forward through the rest of it, because this is just a terrible game. Most of these games had you on the edge of your seat, but not this one. They just blast right through. Case plays pretty well overall, and, and they get into the fourth quarter. It's not a game. It's 34 to 0. And here comes Teddy Bridgewater. And I will say, Judd, that I could cover football for another 50 years and never see a moment like this. Case Keenum is doing the skull chant, but only saying Teddy, Teddy with the rest of the fans. He's leading it. He's sort of doing the motion, the clapping above his head. And he is pumping up the crowd and asking them to cheer for Teddy Bridgewater. Those two had become pretty close in the quarterback room. And I think they cared about each other's success. And that Case genuinely loved seeing Teddy Bridgewater get back out on the field. And considering that he had been not that long ago in the back of an ambulance being told that he might lose his leg to step onto a football field again and take real snaps against real NFL players in a game that counts was one of the most improbable things considering the diagnosis that I have ever seen. Absolutely. Yeah. His leg blew up. I like it. It, it wasn't like he tore his ACL, which a ton of guys do. I, I mean, he, he had gone through an injury that was as, as um, mystifying in many ways and as serious as it could possibly get non-contact. What do you, okay. So let's say, let's say they had decided in Carolina, the case um, magical carpet ride is done. We're going to go to Teddy I think that Zim probably would have been on the precipice of being like, oh, okay, you know. And In fact, it, there were reports that Mike had gone to the players and talked to him about that, right? Oh, Everson, you, Everson Griffin told us that that happened. Okay, yes. okay, so what do you think around this time, what happens in your mind if they make the move? If they say, Case, you've taken us as far as you possibly can, we really appreciate it. Teddy is just, and, and it's an unknown in some ways, but he is a better quarterback in our mind. He, he has the chance to take us to where we want to go. What happens if they pull the trigger on that move? And instead of coming in for a couple of plays against the Bengals, Teddy Bridgewater is installed around this time as a starting quarterback. If he starts against Cincinnati, the way the defense played, they still win. I doubt that they score 34 points because he would have looked really rusty. And his first couple of dropbacks, they didn't look like Teddy Bridgewater. That's for sure. Uh, Michael Floyd and Jarek McKinnon with two drops didn't help him at all, for sure. And the ball goes right through McKinnon hands and is intercepted and uh, talk about taking the wind out of the sails of an entire 60,000 people who are all chanting Teddy, Teddy, Teddy. And then, Oh, you know, but um, still, I mean, it didn't matter because it was still a great moment, but to your point, you know, looking at the way that he played the following preseason for the New York jets, he earned himself a, a, to be traded for, I think it was a third round draft pick to New Orleans. They must have loved what they saw from Bridgewater. And then he gets back in. And again, in his first couple of starts with New Orleans, he had to really fight to win those games that he was shaky. But the last three games he played with New Orleans, he started to click back into being Teddy Bridgewater. And he just demolished the Bears and their great defense in Chicago and looked great. That makes you wonder would that Bridgewater have returned or would you have ended up with somebody who looked like they were really on uncertain ground with their knee? Now they'll tell you up and down, we would never have someone active who couldn't protect themselves or who was an injury liability, but you can't tell me that anybody at that point truly knew how his knee was going to react. That's what I think was the biggest point of trepidation for them was if we put him out there and his knee falls apart again, A, his career is ruined, so he can't go get another contract with someone else. But B, then we got to just go back to case and how's that going to work? It, I will say, if they were ever going to do it, it was after the loss to Carolina. They could have played him for three games and 
he could have played the entire Chicago game week 17 to get some more experience and gone into the playoffs feeling like he was back. If they were ever going to do it, that would have been where you do it. And if there's a difference between Teddy Bridgewater and Case Keenum, it's the interception that Keenum throws against the Saints, and it's the interception he throws against the Eagles. We know that Teddy... One of the things that Zimmer loved most about him is how well he protected the football and he was very smart with throwing it away and things like that. Um, in 2015, the Vikings are one of the best in the league at not turning the ball over. That's where maybe things are different if it's a version of the old Teddy. But I can't sit here and tell you, Judd, that it was going to be old Teddy. I, I can't say that for sure because of how shaky he looked in those few dropbacks and how long it took him an entire other offseason and then another one after that to even get in a game. And he still looks shaky at the very beginning for the New Orleans Saints. Fair enough. I just, I've always been, the, the fact that they actually had players get together and talk about this and the fact that the head coach clearly was thinking about it has always been an interesting sort of untold story of that year and and of the feeling that everybody not just mike and not just us but everybody sort of had this feeling that for case it was going to end and i think there was also a feeling that it was sort of in some ways it was a team that was on a roll and had luck on its side and thought okay if we employ a quarterback which which was obviously supposed to be bradford and was not after he got hurt but if we have a quarterback here who can you know not throw a pass that's going to make us want to puke if we can have a quarterback (laughs) who can make the smart play um it's sort of an interesting flip side and and it would have been dangerous to go to teddy but the interesting thing matthew about this entire conversation is the Vikings knew that like they knew that at the time they, they saw him in practice. Yep. They knew that he was going to be be rusty when he came in and played. And they probably knew it might take a game or two for Teddy to get his sea legs. No pun intended there. But they also talked about it. And so to talk about that is a really interesting dynamic because think about the amount of teams or how few teams in the midst of a season like that in which you win 13 regular season games would ever go down and explore that path, right? Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, it would have felt like your your Bill Walsh, Montana, Steve Young type of benching Montana for Steve Young of level of crazy because you just don't see it. And when someone is playing as well as Case and in Cincinnati – uh, against the Bengals at U.S. Bank Stadium. I mean, he just lights them up. He has a really great game. Their screen game's working perfectly. He throws a dime to Stephon Diggs for a 20-yard touchdown. Like, there was nothing that happened with Case Keenum that ever would have made you say, oh, boy, the version in Carolina, he's back here in Cincinnati. I do wonder, and have always wondered, if the rumblings would have been very loud inside the locker room, had case gone against Cincinnati and let's say they win 13 to six or something and case completes 50% of his passes and throws three interceptions. Then you might be talking about going down to green Bay with Teddy Bridgewater as your quarterback that, that I sustain is possible because I do think after that Carolina loss that we saw some weaknesses in case Keenum that would eventually come to bite him later now let's get to green bay and this game again is a terrible football game we were not blessed at the end of this season with any good football whatsoever think about you and i as reporters judd went from december 10th until january 14th before we saw another good football game that the minnesota vikings played Dude, it, it paid off in spades. It most certainly did. One of, uh, well, easily the best game that I've ever covered and uh, one of the best of the last decade for sure. But let's talk about this bleep show in Green Bay. There was no there was no question that the Vikings defense was just going to kick the tar out of the Green Bay Packers and Brett Hundley. They'd done it before. They were going to do it again. This is where it's zero degrees. Case Keenum does struggle, but you sort of shrug it off because, I mean, the weather is bad. It's really cold. Harrison Smith has one of those classic dominant Harrison Smith games and and dominates this game the way that only Harrison Smith can. After he had just been snubbed for the Pro Bowl, by the way, he gets two interceptions and it was never it was never in a, a doubt of us sitting in that press box in Lambeau Field. But there are two things that happen that change the future. One, Nick Easton goes down with a season-ending injury. And number two is they lost Kevin McDermott to a season-ending injury, the long snapper. 
Both of these things would come big time into play because the Vikings decided to move Mike Remmers to guard the following week where he was absolutely annihilated by Akeem Hicks. He never played guard. Never. And it was totally unfair to him. It was inexplicable. I'll never understand this move. Jeremiah Searles was a solid backup guard who could come in and just do his best. He had played every position before, and you're taking a guy who's never played that spot and saying, yeah, go figure it out. And not only that, but left guard. So not just right guard where he moves over one spot and has to kind of figure it out. But now this is like learning another language backward. So almost an impossible task for Mike Remmers that would come to bite them big time in Philadelphia. And then in new Orleans, the backup long snapper, Jeff Overbaugh goes the wrong way and causes a punt block that nearly allows the new Orleans, new Orleans saints to complete a comeback and beat the Vikings in dramatic fashion. But that night in green Bay, I said to you, this is going to be a problem with actually both of those things because we said it's the most Minnesota Vikings thing of all time for the long snapper to get hurt and it to make a difference just because of the history of this team. But when Nick Easton went down, I said, he's been great this year. This is going to be a problem. Yes. And I, I vividly recall sitting in the press box that night, watching that game and Nick Easton didn't get up. And I think at first we didn't know who was down and you saw, or I saw that it was Easton. And I remember you saying to me, he's really athletic. I don't know if, they can replace him and i think you were thinking at that time that that searles would probably struggle to replace him yeah no nobody in their wildest dreams in fact i it was either during that course no it wasn't that game it was a home game after that that i went to a, a member i forget who it was of the vikings public relations staff and i said what's the history on mike remmers playing guard because i figured oh you know he oh he started four games there for carolina back in right yep and they and they looked at me and they go he's never played here before and so I went. So I went from your word of your words of caution in the Lambeau Field press box, which was this is bad because Easton does X, Y, and Z, and he's athletic and he does these things really well. I went from that being like, okay, this might not be good, to oh, this guy's never played guard before. And I, I remember at that point in time thinking to myself, what the hell are they doing? And the the um, the long snapper thing is very Vikings-like, all right? That's oh, just yes. sort of part of oh, their yes. history. I get that. That stuff happens. It's unfortunate. Um, and Overlaw goes the wrong way. And that's just that's that's sort of just the Vikings in, in a nutshell. It's the Cliff Notes version of the Minnesota Vikings. <laughs> but the guard thing's not. No. Yeah, and, no, and that's right. To play, and deciding to take a guy um, or deciding to replace a guy who gets hurt, who's really valuable, with a guy who, by the way, is a very serviceable to I would consider at that time pretty good right tackle, and yeah. saying play another play guard and play on the opposite side, which you're exactly right. You talk to any guard or or tackle, and you say, what's it like to flip from right to left or vice versa? And I've been told flat out, spend the day trying to write left-handed. Yep. yep. And see how you do, Judd, because you're going to suck at that. Um, so all of those things to me weren't Vikings like it, they were questionable, but you were the first and, and there, there are people to this day who probably won't claim it now, but who were like, Nick Easton's hurt, big deal. And you're like, no, dude, this is really bad. This is not good. And, uh, that it quickly came to light that you were right on that one. And what surprised me the most was moving him to left guard and not Joe Berger, because if anyone was going to do it, it would be the wily veteran who had done it all and seen it all and played every position. He had been a backup for a long time in Miami and then emerged as actually a very good offensive lineman for the Vikings. And, and that made more sense to me. I remember writing in the lead up to the game against the bears where they again, very easily close things out and it's never much of a conversation. That's one of the few games in the, my history covering the Vikings that I just have no recollection of. Like, I don't remember anything that happened that day. Um, but uh, you know, aside from Remmer struggling so much and I don't know why they didn't move him from right tackle to right guard and bump Berger over his Berger's intelligence, his experience. I think that would have gone better for them. I do remember thinking I, that there was a possibility Remmers would play guard because Rashad Hill had been good. And eventually in the miracle game, he's pretty solid. He gets exposed against the Eagles in the playoffs. We'll get to that in uh, episode five, but um, you know, it, it, it was a bizarre move. It remains a bizarre move and, and mysterious to me. And there was never really a true explanation for it, but 
that was the thing with Elfline and Easton down the stretch of this season is those two had been terrific and they did not suffer little injuries. They suffered traumatic injuries that altered their careers going forward. Nick Easton ended up having another injury and missing the whole following season has never really become the player that he was that year. But for that section of time for that season, those two played a huge role in the success of the team. And then you have one with a shoulder problem is ailing and another one is out and your offensive line goes to play the New Orleans Saints in pretty banged up fashion, which Judd will be episode five. So I really appreciate your time here on episode four, looking back at the final section of the season. Can I mention one one thing off of sitting in Green Bay that night, watching that game, and a Packer team that since 1992 collar has had six starting QBs, mostly, mostly, if not almost all, right? Favre and Rodgers. Sitting there, though, in Lambeau Field watching Brett Hundley go 17 of 40 <laughs> for 130 yards and throw two picks, the fans in Green Bay need to understand what the Vikings fans have had to see. And that <laughs> night, and that night, they sort of got a taste. They sort of got a taste of throwing a quarterback out there who was incapable against a good defense, who was awful. It was sort of fun to watch the Packers fan base at least get a little bit of a glimpse of what the Vikings have seen with guys like Tavares Jackson and Spurgeon win and that list of players at least for that night they got a glimpse of what Vikings fans have been subjected to a lot more than they ever have and that season certainly uh, started the downfall of Mike McCarthy in Green Bay that the quarterback he stuck with and remember him getting very defensive with reporters about sticking with Brett Hundley uh, did not work out by any means and that pretty much ended their season I think Hundley had a couple of games where they went oh maybe we could be in the playoff race and then the Vikings beating their offense down that night ended all of that. And so they get a win. They finished the season 13 and three regular season. They have a week off, but that's where we're going to start with episode five. Um, so make sure if you haven't listened to episodes one through three, that you go back and find those breaking down the off season. And then the first section of the season, the second section, and then this episode, the third, uh, we're going to start with how the playoffs played out and just how close the Vikings came to playing other teams potentially in the playoffs a fascinating fascinating year and that's why we're spending all this time looking back at the 2017 season so we will catch you next time thank you again judd talk to you later